Hi there, my name is Peter Bell, and today I'm talking with Adam uh, Sibniewski, who is the CTO at DeepGram. Adam, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Thank you for having me, Peter. So just to give people a little bit of context for, for the, the rest of this, uh, what does DeepGram actually do? DeepGram is a company that has rethought speech recognition. If you look at existing te technologies and solutions out there, they're all fairly similar, built in the 90s, and don't scale. But we see a rapidly growing voice market out there. And so DeepGram uses GPU acceleration and end-to-end -end deep learning in order to reach the scale goals, cost, and performance goals that our customers need to actually roll out speech recognition across their platform. Makes perfect sense. Thank you. So what I'd love to dig into, often we, when you talk with engineering leaders, one of the things you have to say is you're not a special snowflake, right? There's a reason why all the other companies are going in a particular direction. You should probably default do the same thing. But I know at DeepGram, you've made a bunch of decisions where you've really gone against the flow. Uh, at the very highest level, before we dig into details, was that a an, an, was that a goal? Like we're going to be the revolutionary company, revolutionary from an implementation perspective rather than from a value prop perspective, or was it simply that you found that you had differing needs and you you optimized for the problems? Good question. I would say that when you are trying to throw out all of the existing technology and replace it with something better that's going to scale into the future, you have to rethink very critically a lot of the typical decision points that you might encounter. In our case, we weren't trying to be countercultural, but we are trying to make the best decision from the ground up. And we found that, yes, in many cases, the decisions we made did not agree with common knowledge or with the common cultural practices you see in engineering. And we weren't scared to embrace those and see where they led us. They've been very successful choices. That's great. Well, let's dig into one of those. So um, start maybe with, with languages. So are, are you building this all in, in JavaScript like the cool kids? No, we aren't. We have uh, really three different languages across our tech stack. Our, all of our front end is written in Elm. And we've got all of our back ends that are actually doing hard work written in Rust. And then our research team is using something a little more common, Python. But Rust is probably by far and large the, uh, the broadest language we're using at DeepGram. So one of the concerns with using, and, and I see, I feel like there's a, there is a growth of interest in Rust. It feels like maybe the cool, the more of the cool kids will be using it as, as time goes by. It's, it's, I've seen some really interesting articles comparing it to Go and things like that. Uh, what are some of the challenges and opportunities choosing a language where the developer community is, is perhaps not as big as Java or .NET or C Sharp or something similar? So I would start with the, the challenges. It's certainly not as big of a community. So hiring becomes a problem. You need to look in the right places. The people are there. You just need to look for them. And they're generally very excited, which is a wonderful thing to, when you're hiring and growing a team. Uh, Rust is also a very difficult language. I've, I've personally programmed in over a dozen languages, and Rust is certainly the, the largest and steepest learning curve for myself. So it can be hard if you're trying to introduce it to a team that doesn't have a Rust background. You have to take time. You have to be a little bit more tactical about it. But the benefits have been tremendous. It's an incredibly performant language. And for DeepGram, it made the difference between us scaling slowly and scaling quickly. Well, I say that because we wrote some of our original core algorithms in Python for ease of use. Very common language or data, data science and research. 
But we found that the number of invariants, things that engineers had to keep in their head and remember to always be true as they program, was growing faster than uh, we could possibly allow. People were making mistakes because they couldn't remember everything. By switching to Rust, we can offload the cognitive burden onto a tool, a compiler. So it becomes a productivity tool that allows engineers to be far more productive and focus on the actual hard problems without maintaining all of this internal mental state. That makes sense. And is it at least getting to the point where drivers for common backends, databases, you know, Kafka, things like that, are, are, is, is most of that available now in, in the Rust community? It is. It is a surprisingly mature ecosystem. You, you, if you want to jump into development, you can usually find any libraries you need off the shelf. And then just out of interest, the people who you've ended up hiring in the engineering function who are programming in Rust, well, did all of them have some Rust experience? Did you manage to mine that community or are you bringing people from other communities as well? It's been about half and half. I would say that we had an existing engineering base. We made the strategic decision to embrace Rust as our primary uh, language in our backend tech stack. And so that was a process of teaching and educating and encouraging the existing engineers to embrace it. And we've had very high success. Engineers are very excited to learn Rust. They really appreciate what it gives them as soon as they, they realize how much it's doing. The other half have been hired with Rust background. We don't typically look and require a Rust background, but we know that it's helpful. But at the end of the day, the, the truth is, is that good engineers that you, they're the ones that you really want to help accelerate growth at your company, are going to pick a language up. Languages are generally not the blocker to a successful technical team. And that makes sense. Um, I'll do a little bit of a counterexample, though. I remember back in the days when Scala was just becoming popular. It's like, hey, you've got this functional language and you've got actors, you're on the JVM. Uh, the we, we ended up with this kind of like the, the tale of two Scala teams. There were the Scala teams who had a core committer or an ex exceedingly experienced engineers. And they basically wrote a detailed style guide and said, look, there's 20 ways to do anything in Scala. This is our way. And then there were all the other teams who got six months into the project and then came up with, you know, unhandled type exceptions. And they didn't realize that Martin Odersky is basically a type theorist who happened to write a programming language. And they had no idea what was going on because it was all implicit typing and they, they just didn't get it. Are there similar gotchas in the Rust, Rust world in terms of figuring out the right way to do things? That's a really good question. And the answer is yes, there are some difficulties. Uh, as a worse example, I'll bring up C++, where you can build whatever you want in any possible way. And you don't even know if it, you know, with you have metaprogramming happening, you don't even know what you're doing half the time unless, you, unless you're the one who wrote it. Uh, Rust has a similarly flexible language design. You can approach it in a lot of different ways. It's a little bit more opinionated than C++ is. I think that helps. I, there are really two tools at your disposal. One is cultural and one is technical. From a cultural perspective, you need to encourage your team to come up with standards for your company, to encourage code reviews where they are looking at each other's code and saying, that's a valid way to do it. I don't think it's readable. Can you try switching it to this? And if you have the right culture, people say, understandable. If it's hard to read, I, it's hard to debug and maintain. So yes. And the technical one is some of the Rust ecosystem tools. There is a linter called Clippy and a formatter called Rust Format. 
And these more or less transform your code into very idiomatic code. So between having a good engineering culture and using the tools at your disposal, you can very quickly kind of hone in on a nice, a nice idiomatic design for all of your code. Nice. That's some great hints in case anyone's uh, deciding to standardize on Rust. Uh, to move on to Elm, that, that's also not one of the most popular choices, though I do have a friend who runs a, a dev shop who's like, the only reason we can ship as much as we do is because we use Elm on the front end. Uh, for people who've not had that experience, why did you choose Elm over, you know, presumably JavaScript and then potentially using React or maybe Angular for, for, for that? We have written front ends in most of the common frameworks at this point. Um, we settled on Elm for two reasons. One is that it has many of the compile time guarantees that Rust has around uh, strongly and statically typed languages. So our, our engineers are having some of their cognitive burden offloaded to the compiler. Makes them be able to focus on business problems and not you know, nitty gritty technical problems. The, the other reason is that we simply found as we were trying to hire Rust people, that we would find people who also happen to like Elm <laughs> because they have very similar goals in mind for what for language design. And so it just happened to be that as we're looking for back end, we could find good front end engineers. They were wanted to be an Elm. They asked to program an Elm. They they wanted to. And well, if you have a team that is everybody on the team is interested in doing it, and you have no real reasons not to, go ahead and embrace it. And I think it's been a good thing because it again has allowed for people to join the team without knowledge of the language, but still know that the compiler is a fallback for them. It's going to catch their mistakes and help them grow. Makes sense. And then are, are there any downsides you've noticed with Elm, like in terms of, again, maturity of the community primarily? It is less than mature than Rust. And so the standard libraries and the uh, library ecosystem around it is a little bit less mature. Calling off to raw JavaScript and bypassing Elm can be done. It's a little less ergonomic. So if you have a lot of work that integrating with existing JavaScript frameworks, then it might not be the right choice for you. Got it. And then when you look at that tech stack of primarily Rust and Elm, I understand there's still the Python for the, for the data science and the data science research work. Uh, are there, if you can't hire for whatever reason a Rust or an Elm developer, are there particular places you look? Do you find that there are languages of affinity that are other communities that it's more easy to pull from versus, again, just pulling a bunch of C-sharp developers? You know, I haven't noticed it in our recruiting pipeline, mm -hmm. but I would say that there is enough overlap with Rust that even if people aren't primarily Rust developers, they're still lurk lurking about different Rust resources and forums. And so you can oftentimes catch them. Same for Elm developers. Maybe they haven't done this for you know five years, but they're interested enough that they want to jump in and they're excited. You can also find them in some of the more technical or systems or safe programming. You know, if you're interested in having safe uh, language design, look around and you're going to find Rust and Elm people popping up in these areas as well. That makes sense. And do you notice, Does is your team primarily US-based? Uh, and do you find that there's any impact on your ability to hire internationally, picking what is a niche set of languages? We are primarily US-based, but we do have 
contractors around the world. And we really haven't run into a, any blockers with regards to our geography. You know, we find really high quality Rust and Elm programmers around the globe. That's great. So in addition to choosing perhaps uh, languages that are not as, as widely used as some others, I, I believe you also, you're, you're not um, set up with Google Cloud or Azure or AWS. Why, what are you doing for hosting and why did you make that choice? So it's a little bit of a complex technology story. So the, we do have a small cloud presence. It doesn't do a lot of compute, though. We use it as a front end, if you will, to all of our data centers that we're hosting out of. For us, the driver was around GPUs. Uh, we have to solve an accelerated computing problem. We need accelerated hardware. And so GPUs were the natural place to go. Now, you can find GPUs in the cloud. All the major service providers offer them. But if your core business strategy revolves around accelerated compute, you can't afford to rent them from a cloud provider. They'll pay for themselves in a month or two. And presumably, you want to be in business for more than a month or two. Right. There are also real constraints around learning and training. We are a research company as well. And so if you have to do machine learning and training these systems and you want them at the fastest speeds possible, you need fast interlinks that often are not available from the cloud providers. So in our case, we decide to own the problem. And this specifically own the hardware. We rack the servers ourselves. Got it. So you use a you are using a colo facility, though it's not like in the the back shed of your house or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, we we run out of several different colos. Yes. Got it. And then, how does that work in practice? How much of the physical, like discs, die? Power supplies blow out, right? When you have a certain scale, this can become up to a, a daily occurrence, depending on just how many servers you have racked and stacked. How do you deal with that? Do you do you just have a set of spare Western Digitals for for the colo provider and just be like, hey, could you swap out like rack twelve, row seven, or, or how do you manage the physical logistics of we got all these one U or two U boxes sitting in a, a data center? So when you're a startup. The first thing you do is ignore all of that. And <laughs> if you have a hard drive go out, okay, too bad. You're down one Obviously, you need to grow past that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you need to grow past that. And so in our case, we, as we started to grow and scale out our computing resources at the Colos, we tried very hard to think about how we would have redundancy built in. Absolutely, things die. Disks die. RAM goes bad. We've had CPUs fail. We've had... A GPU catch on fire before. These things happen. Um, but you make sure you have spares on hand. You build redundancy in. You have redundant power supplies. You have spare memory lying around or disks lying around. You have RAID arrays uh, on your network attached storage. You have redundant routers and switches so that if anything goes wrong, you can, as far as possible, remotely work around the problem. Sometimes you need to ask for a remote hands and, and eyes and have the data center operators help you out and replace. Sometimes you need to go there in person. It hasn't been a burden for us. It actually has, for the most part, been smooth because of the planning we've put in. But yep, sometimes I have to wake up and drive out to the data center. It's okay. <laughs> I, I remember I used to run a hosting business, a 
20 years ago now and I basically had a whole bunch of one use in a colo facility somewhere and I still remember that one night when I had to drive out with a couple of spare hard drives from Best Buy to get the to get the unfortunately we were not quite as sophisticated back then it was a, a little bit of a marginal operation <laughs> uh so I mean talking about failover from redundancy and being able to to get back up to speed again so a, a way a lot of people deal with that is let's use kubernetes or some kind of similar orchestration around something like docker so that you can easily say hey just stand up this set of things here how do you do you use that kind of tooling or how do you go about uh deploying and failing over and and getting each box looking the way you want it to look Great question. So in our case, we are running with bare metal machines. We don't just provision VMs or use an elastic Kubernetes out in the cloud. We are running our own boxes and we need a tool that's easy for us to deploy our services and configure our boxes the way they need to be built. In our case, Kubernetes is a complex setup. Uh, Kubernetes really is, in my opinion, well-suited to cloud providers where it can kind of be specialized to the hardware and the, the ecosystem that they're running and providing to their customers. We wanted something simpler. So what we have is a combination of Ansible for mm -hmm. configuring all the machines, just setting that. up the base box with our security profiles and configuration. And then we use a HashiCorp's Nomad software for maintaining all of the services that need to be running. It has been much simpler than running something like Kubernetes it's been much more reliable than running some of the other orchestration tools we've tried, like Docker Swarm, for example. And it's very flexible. It allows us to run GPU jobs, uh, run containers, run raw binaries. Uh, it solves all the problems that we needed to solve quite elegantly and simply without a large burden on the ecosystem. Nice. So uh, to move along then, uh, I know another thing you talked about is this idea of the, the team makeup and looking for like some kind of engineering background, even in people who are not in the engineering org, even in, in sales and ops. Now, part of that is just the nature of a highly technical company, which presumably your value prop is technical enough that customer support probably need to understand. It's not like you're selling mattresses online. Um, do you run into issues, A, finding people with a technical background who want a non-technical role, and then B, compensating them, given that at least some of them could have the option of just brushing up their Ruby skills and, you know, making 75K as a junior dev? It can be difficult. Uh, and like you said, we do look for a technical background, even outside of our core engineering team. We view this as a reasonable trade-off. We are a deeply technical company. We build our tech stack from the grounds up. We don't, we're not outsourcing anything to other providers. So when we go to our customers and talk about what we have to offer them, when they come to us with questions about what our software can or cannot do, we want our employees at every level to be able to really deeply understand and answer those questions, not just refer to a playbook in a wiki somewhere. We want them to be able to think for themselves and answer those questions. I think internalizing that is important to building a strong culture around a technical company's offerings. Can it be hard to hire people? Absolutely. Uh, but it, the cost of hiring the wrong person can be a lot higher. So in our case, we've we just have a strategy around making sure that we hire the right people. And if that means that we're willing to feel the burn of not having those positions filled, that's okay. And we're willing to wait for the right person. 
And have you ever found it is something that I was playing with at one point where I was actually looking or reaching out to boot camps and saying, hey, I want to hire somebody who just finished your boot camp and hated programming. Like, you know, they, they went through the whole thing and they were like, yes, I don't want to do this 40 hours a week. But clearly they were technical enough to commit to, to doing a boot camp. Do you have any secrets or suggestions for finding people with a good technical background who would be open to non-technical roles? That's a really good question. Um, what you tend to find is these sort of people do exist. It's odd. I can't give a lot of of guidance around finding them because they're they are rare. What you really need to do is have the confidence of knowing that they're there. For example, if you want to build a support group, then you need people who are deeply uh, technical from an engineering perspective, but also enjoy talking to customers, wanting to give them a good experience. Most engineers are not these social <laughs> butterflies that you're looking for, but they do exist. And so just have faith that there are these people there. Wait for them. Be picky about them. You will find them. And presumably it also helps that you were remote first, even pre-COVID. So it gave you the geographic options rather than just like, and they need to live in the mission. That's that's correct. We've been remote since the very first day. Got it. So uh, that makes sense about the team. Uh, another thing that often comes up, and I, I think it's, again, kind of speaks to this idea of going against the flow, is, is the build versus buy decision. Because in general, as a startup, you have to be super focused right on your, your core mission. And the uh, like Eric Evans, Domain Driven Design, the, one of the things he was talking about was this idea that you should build anything that is part of your core technical differentiator, your core domain, and outsource the rest. Have you found any times where you actually ended up building something that maybe naively at first glance would be something you should have been outsourcing instead? Yes, we have, we have always tried to be laser focused on our core business offerings. I think any company ought to be, and it's especially true for startups. But we also recognize that if something is part of your core offering, then you can't outsource it. It's too important. It, you, you want to have that collateral in-house. So in our case, because we need to provide speech recognition built from the ground up to our customers, why from the ground up? Well, that was the hypothesis for our startup. We need to replace the existing speech recognition software in order to make it scale. To build it from the ground up, you need a research team to train models. You need data for that research team. So you need to find audio data and provide labels so that it can be trained on. Then you need to transition all of that research to some platform that engineering runs to provide to customers. In our case, we're three companies in one. We've owned all three of those problems. Can you outsource to Mechanical Turk? Sure. Is it going to work well? No. Mostly be around quality control. If you have a data, a data-driven product like we do, then data is your goldmine. It's the most important thing you have, and it underlies everything you do. It's the thing that is going to put constraints on how accurate can your models get. So it's important that you have absolute control over how well the data is curated. So in our case, we had options around outsourcing and decided that it's too close to home. It's too important for us to put in other people's hands. So when you see those business opportunities, Building it instead of buying it can make a lot of sense. You need to be careful and ask yourself, does this make sense for our company? 
Have you ever gone too far down that road and ended up building something that you're like four years later? You're like, I still have three people maintaining this thing. I wish I'd never started it. I should have just bought Salesforce or whatever problem it was solving. There have been times where we've gone that route. Um, and in that case, you know, you don't, you don't point fingers anywhere. You accept that. Okay, that was a mistake. That's fine. Move on. Drop it. Don't spend three years. In other words, the best way to get out of that situation is to cut it off early and strategically. It doesn't. If it doesn't make sense, stop it. Um, you know, we've done similar things with uh, CI/CD pipelines. You know, build or buy sort of thing. You know, some of these. This is not part of our core offering. Do we really need to do this? Do we want people spending time. No. Yeah, spend a few hundred dollars a month. Who cares? That's okay. So nip it in the bud early. Love it. And then just, I know we're, we're running up on time here. So do you have any like general rules of thumb that you use to guide when you are trying to make the decision whether to follow the crowd or take the road less traveled? It's really been whether or not it's the right tool for the job. In our case, ask yourself, what is the problem you're trying to solve? Why do you want to use that tool to solve the problem? Are there other tools that could solve the problem? And what's, what are the benefits or downsides of using that? If the problem you're trying to solve, you're constrained by something deeply fundamental, that's the time to start think, rethinking your strategy. If you're just thinking about, hey, Go's the shiny new language, should we switch to Go? That's not a good reason. If your goal is to appeal to the open source community across a wide variety of platforms, and keep dev time low, Go starts to make a lot more sense if those are the real constraints you have. So at the end of the day, it's about being very honest about the constraints that you're operating under and choosing technologies that fit those constraints and not choosing technologies for their own sake. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom and experiences. It's been a pleasure, Peter. Thank you.